Well, good morning, everyone. Some of you, probably all of you, have heard by now that, regrettably, there was a disruption in the 9 o'clock service. So it's still going on. Powell's just telling me that it's, you know, things are beginning to catch up, so it shouldn't be much longer before it lets out. But I want to maximize our time with our speakers, so I'm going to get started. Thank you all very much for coming this lovely Sunday morning. Rob and I were talking weeks ago now about the fall speaker series schedule. And as you all know, we talk about foreign policy uh, in the series from time to time. And I was saying to Rob, you know, we haven't focused on the Middle East in a while. When we focused on foreign policy, we focused, of course, on, you know, the Russian war against Ukraine. We focused on the geopolitical competition with China. But uh, the Middle East has faded from the headlines, but the issues haven't been resolved, and so why don't we focus on the Middle East? And I said, I can invite our old friend Shibli Talhami back. And he said, that's a great idea, in particular because we will have just gotten back from the Holy Land, our pilgrimage, this Sunday. Now, of course, we couldn't have anticipated that last Saturday there would have been the Hamas attack of Israel, which makes Shibli's being here with us today even more timely and important. So thank you all for coming. Shibli Talhami, an old friend of mine uh, who's here with his wife, Catherine, is the Anwar Sadat Professor of Peace and Development, Distinguished Scholar Teacher, and the Director of the University of Maryland Critical Issues Poll. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Before coming to the University of Maryland, he taught in several other universities, including Princeton, Columbia, and UC Berkeley, from which he received his PhD. He's also the author and editor of numerous books about the region, including the bestseller, The Stakes, America in the Middle East. His most recent book that we were just talking about, The One State Reality, What is Israel-Palestine? And the forthcoming, Peace Derailed, Obama, Trump, Biden, and the Decline of Diplomacy on Israel-Palestine, which Shibley is the co-author of. In addition to being a noted scholar and teacher, he also has advised four successive American presidents on Middle East issues, starting with George H.W. Bush. So George H.W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. With that, please join me welcoming Dr. Shibley Telhami. Thank you so much. Thanks, Clark. Yeah, I mean, you could tell that uh, only Clark predicted what was going to happen when he booked me. Uh, 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 so it's, it's uh, a pleasure to be back here. Uh, I've been here twice before. It's been a few years since I've been back uh, here. Um, and I know that this is a uh, community that cares. I know this is a community that um, cares about the world. Um, and certainly about the Middle East uh, that uh, has witnessed so much suffering over the years. Um, so let me start by uh, saying this is really a moment for us um, to focus on our common humanity. And I, I say that, you know, this is not just because this is a church and this is a community that is here to worship and to contemplate um, uh, to care, um, to, to search for the love of the other, uh, for sure, but just as, a, as, as human beings. Uh, and it is impossible to watch the suffering that is being endured in Israel-Palestine right now and not be moved. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's a Jewish child or an Arab child, whether it's an Israeli child or a Palestinian child, it is a heartbreaking uh, time. And when you look just at the numbers, just look at the numbers, uh, we don't have, it's changing by a minute. We can't even, you know, by the time I say something, it's going to be wrong because it's going to 
It, it's like hundreds of being killed uh, within hours. Um, so far, between Palestinians killed and wounded and Israelis killed and wounded, we definitely have more than 15,000 in, in just a little over a week. Uh, in the Palestinian, on the Palestinian side, um, we have one million homeless. One million homeless rendered by the bombings. Now, let me just start by saying, you know, uh, there is no cause in the world, no cause, even a very just cause, that justifies targeting civilians or recklessly endangering them. And doing so is a war crime by international law. The attack by Hamas was a war crime. They targeted innocent civilians on a large scale. It was a horrific attack. And it was a war crime. And right now, what we're witnessing, the scale of devastation in Gaza with the kind of blockade that has taken place in Gaza, uh, cutting off electricity, water, food from people, the kind of reckless bombings that is generating tens of thousands of dead. 700 children have been killed in Gaza just over the past week. Um, uh, the homelessness, that too is a war crime under international law. And, and I think that when I view that and I look at it and I see uh, what we are doing, both as the United States of America uh, and as human beings to, to help alleviate it, um, I understand war. I'm a student of war. I understand war. I understand that people's hearts get hardened in war. We've all seen it. We, we get darker. Uh, we only focus on our own victimhood. Uh, we, uh, it blinds us to the suffering of the other, including the innocent other. It blinds us so much that we're capable of doing things that normally we wouldn't do. We demonize the other. We lump everyone together. They're all evil. They're all bad. They're all terrorists. They're all this. They're all that. They all deserve what's coming to them. And as I said, nothing justifies targeting vulnerable civilians or recklessly endangering them. And honestly, I don't think we have, as the United States of America, met the moral moment. We have not risen to the moral moment. We cannot allow people in the midst of their pain to make the right decisions. We cannot allow them to behave as though they don't feel the pain. We do not, cannot allow them without understanding that their hearts hardened. We cannot allow the urge of vengeance to lead policy. We need to grow above that pain as responsible adults, as responsible leaders, as responsible advisors, uh, to preach to both that we will not accept war crimes. We will not accept, we will not accept the hurting of civilians on the scale that has taken place. And I see, you know, my president, somebody I've known over the years, um, when he was senator, when he was vice president, someone I admired over the years, 
I saw what he did when Hamas carried out its first attack, uh, very um, atrocious attack. And he called the Prime Minister of Israel, somebody he doesn't like, by the way, someone we know he doesn't like, somebody who's um, insulted him in the past, someone he thinks is an extremist, but he called him during that moment of vulnerability uh, to say, we are with you. And that was important. It was important not for the Prime Minister of Israel to hear, it was important for the vulnerable people. It doesn't matter, like I said, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or an Arab, an Israeli or Palestinians, when you are suffering, you are hurt. And this was not only a moment of hurt and devastation and seeing loved ones being hurt and no one able to help them in the moment, but also a paradigm shift where you feel like you thought your security is assured and you don't think it is anymore. And, and so you're feeling completely vulnerable. We know what those moments are like. We've been there. Many of us have been there at various times. You want somebody to hold your hands. You want somebody to call you and say, I'm with you. That was the right thing to do for the president. But since then, we have not met the moral moment. Because nothing justifies the scale of hurting civilians that we now see in Gaza. Nothing at all, no cause can justify that. We have seen, as I said, unbelievable damage taken place. We have seen thousands of people killed, thousands of people wounded, and yes, according to that most recent estimates, a million people displaced. And recall, when we say displaced, Gaza has a population of 2.2 million people. This is almost half of the population. And when you're looking at Gaza and you're looking at this population, and we say displaced, this is a population, the majority of which are descendants of refugees from 1948. They lost their homes in what is now central Israel. And now they're becoming homeless again in their own, in their own new home uh, in Gaza. Nothing justifies that. And we need to speak with a clear moral voice or else no one is going to hear us in the world when we say we stand for human rights and we stand for uh, the rule of law uh, and we stand for international norms. No one's going to hear us. And we're not just a, another party, we're enablers. It's not just that we are not saying, act with restraint. Act, Israel has a right to defend itself. Of course it does. Of course it does. And the horrific attack on Israel, it is a war crime that Hamas carried out, undoubtedly. But you cannot take that to the next level or say, I'm going to give you a carte blanche. I'm even going to give you more bombs to carry out that blank check, to cash out that blank check. Remember, these planes that are carrying out these attacks that have killed 700 children over the past week are American-made planes. Many of the bombs are American bombs. And they are taking place under the cover of our support in the name of self-defense. And 
you don't, you, you can, it should be the case that you empathize with the suffering of Israelis without being blinded to the suffering of Palestinians. And if, isn't, if this isn't the case, then we're not human. There should be no differentiation in our thinking about victimhood uh, in, in terms of um, the principle should be our common humanity in this case. So I worry, first of all, that we're not taking the moral point of view sufficiently and loudly enough and allowing something to happen on a scale we have not witnessed in decades, and it's not over yet, because I, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. Second, I want to address a little bit the idea that calling for civilians to get out uh, somehow is, uh, you know, absolves you of any responsibility. No, it does not. Um, Calling for civilians to get out before you bomb does not absolve you of responsibility for hurting civilians under international law. Just let's be clear. That's a rhetorical exercise. It's not something that then take away, takes away responsibility from doing it. Um, it's like, and, and so that, that's number one. Number two, can you imagine when you're calling on one million Palestinians to leave within 24 hours, what that means, logistically. Um, you know, the Israeli government called on its own citizens in the settlements that were attacked by Hamas, um, and it called on them to evacuate. And uh, Israel is a, uh, has a, a very developed infrastructure. Uh, it has a well-organized community and, and, and obviously civil defense and, and, and security, uh, uh, one, of, one of the better in the world perhaps. And they couldn't get, they, people couldn't get out. In those small settlements, they're not very well you know, populated. They couldn't get out, why? Because, well, the cell phones didn't work. Uh, the, the, there were no buses, there were no instructions as to where to go. They didn't know how to get out of there. And so just in those communities, um, when we have, uh, when we, we call on people to, to uh, if you imagine you go to Houston, say, evacuate in the next 24 hours because a hurricane is coming, how many people are really going to get out of there in, a, in, a, in, a, in 24 hours? In, in our own country, even without, without war. And you're thinking about what's happening in Gaza, you're talking about, look at the bombings. It's, it's, it's in some places, like carpet bombings. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you're talking about no electricity, you're talking about no water, you're talking about ambulances having a hard time getting to the dead. You're talking about people burying their deads in the streets right now because they can't get to cemeteries. So just the idea that somehow you're gonna get all those people getting out of harm's way in an organized thing in 24 hours is just, it's just a rhetorical exercise to somehow say we're doing something for the civilians, when in fact we're not. And the final point is, there's a lot of fear in the Palestinians that this is another episode of making them more refugees again out of the Gaza Strip. Uh, obviously, the fear in Palestine has always been a community that has been made mostly refugees over across 
of the border, whether it's in Gaza, whether it's parts of the West Bank, in Jordan, in Lebanon, in, in Syria, in, in horrible conditions for decades. And people fear that this is another episode in which they would be made refugees again, and they don't want it to happen. And the, the political leaders don't want it to happen. Hamas, of course, doesn't want it to happen for a lot of reasons, but it's not just Hamas, it's people in, uh, across the board, including enemies of Hamas, the Palestinian Authority, intellectuals, secular, uh, they don't want to create another refugee uh, problem. Um, so uh, that is a fear, and that is one reason why I think people are, might get out of the harm's way in terms of going, you know, uh, moving to another part of Gaza if they can, if they can run for their lives. Some of them are, uh, but they're not going to. Um, they, they're not going to allow themselves to become uh, another refugee committee outside of Gaza, out, outside of the Palestinian areas. They, they're, they're terrified of that. And I think there's a campaign not to make it happen. Now, um, you know, in Israel, um, of course, there's a lot of pain. Um, uh, I, I was um, um, with my wife in, in Israel and the West Bank um, just uh, a few days before the war started. Uh, and um, there is a paradigmatic shift that's taken place. Um, uh, Israelis do feel vulnerable. They feel this has actually undermined their entire posture in the Middle East. They feel what they call deterrence has been undermined. They obviously have to worry about loved ones like everyone else. And they see all the evil to be uh, focused on Hamas. They think that Hamas is uh, all and, you know, uh, the problem. And of course, Hamas is a problem. Hamas is the one that attacked. Hamas. Uh, is an organization that has used terrorism uh, before, not just now. But they don't want to acknowledge the fact that at the core of this is not just Hamas. That the one reason why Hamas has strengthened over time is that we have had 56 years of occupation that has not ended. Uh, and let me be very clear. Explanation and justification is not one and the same thing. And I'm a social scientist. If we believe that explanation and justification is the same thing, we would never be able to explain anything at all in the world because everybody will be blaming us that we're justifying what happened when we're trying to explain it. That just makes no sense. And without explanation, we're doomed as a society. So, so be clear, explanation is not justification. The fact that you're saying the occupation is a big source of the problem doesn't mean you're justifying what Hamas did because it can't be justified, as I said before. So let's be clear about that. But to, to, to argue that at the core of the problem isn't this 56-year occupation that has lasted a lifetime for most people, I've written about it over and over again, worried that this is going to be an explosion. I wasn't the only one, most of us. And Hamas is a problem, but Gaza was not paradise before Hamas took over in 2006. And there is no Hamas um, in control of the West Bank. And look at what's happening in the West Bank. It's not paradise. I was there last two weeks ago. Uh, and it is a people feel humiliated. People struggle every day. Now that you have a right-wing Israeli government, 
you have a, that is very um, supportive of the settler, including settler violence. You have an increase in settler violence against vulnerable Palestinians day in and day out, several times a day actually on average, with no one to, to defend them. Uh, and uh, settler encroachment, uh, I know the rector was, was in, in Bethlehem, Beit Zahur and Beit Jala perhaps um, last week uh, where, where my wife and I were, uh, the, the settlements are encroaching all over. It's, it's almost hard to separate what is, what is settlement from, from the towns encroaching into, in the, into the territories. Um, so um, uh, th that's, a, that's a despair. And then when you're taking, when you're looking at that despair, the, right, the rise of you know, outwardly uh, racist ministers in the Israeli government who say this is only a land for the Jews, you don't belong here to the Palestinians. These are not just marginal Israelis, these are ministers in the Israeli government, including the Minister of National Security, uh, who also said Gaza belongs to us, the Palestinians can go to Iran before this crisis. Um, so, um, so we're talking about people you know, a, a um, fear and despair in the Palestinian area. They were hoping that a democratic president after Trump would pay more attention to them in terms of helping end the conflict. No such thing happened. They were hoping that Arab states that had said in the past that they will make peace with Israel only if there's an end to the occupation would come and weigh in. And now we find that many of them were making peace with Israel without ending the occupation. And maybe the president was trying to get the Saudis to do the same thing without the end of the occupation. There was tremendous amount of despair. We're taking a lot of the peaceful instruments in their hands that we can weigh in to help put leverage on the table to help end the occupation. Uh, we're taking that away. That's when militant groups uh, seize the moment. Now, they, they seize it for their, own, for their own ends, and they do it in an ugly way, as we've seen. Again, no justification for it. But that's what happens. We, we were, you expect an explosion. You don't know where it's going to come from. They captured the moment of despair and trying to score points on the, in their favor and take away from their opponents. Um, the net result is obviously a moment of devastation for both sides. It's a lose-lose. Have no, you know, people are talking about victory. They're going to have a victory by destroying Hamas. What victory is that? When thousands of your own people are dead and wounded, and then in the process, thousands and thousands of Palestinian innocent. I'm not talking about Hamas. I'm talking about put put aside the Hamas issue. We're talking about the people, the vulnerable populations, people who don't want anything to do with this, who are destroyed and killed and, and made homeless again. And, and that's, so the humanitarian thing is huge, first of all, but even if you don't think about the humanitarian, how is that gonna solve the problem? So you do that and then what? And when you're creating another million refugees, what do you think is going to happen to them? They're going to love you the next day, even if Hamas doesn't disappear. What do you think they're going to do? That's why I say the president is right to have empathy with the Israeli people in their moment of vulnerability. The president is right in saying Israel has to defend itself. 
But defending itself does not mean violating international law. It doesn't mean carrying out war crimes. It doesn't mean a license to go beyond that. And it goes a little bit more than the moral for the United States of America. Um, we are part of this relationship. One reason we are looked upon for responsible leadership is that we have been enabler over the years. Uh, one reason why settlements have expanded is that we have uh, refused to allow the United Nations to take any steps against them, even though they were illegal under international law. We veto every resolution that comes out. We don't do that. Uh, we're carrying out the uh, normalization between Israel and, and, and the Arab countries, a lever that could, could be helpful for ending the occupation without paying attention to ending the occupation. Um, and obviously we, we give billions of dollars of support for Israel and, and military support uh, and technology to, to maintain the upper hand. But put that aside for a moment. We are implicated. Why? Um, well, let's say the, the, the war goes on now and there is a, um, um, an Israeli ground uh, uh, attack in Gaza, which, which people are expecting to take place. And obviously that's going to be, again, in terms of civilian casualties, it's going to be huge. And probably for both sides, because Hamas is going to do something in response for sure. Uh, and um, what you're going to have is more anger with the U.S. You already see it. Look, look at the, you know, what, look at what happened in the Arab world. I mean, we're only watching what happens here or in London or in the West. But the Arab world is... Demonstrations are all over. Today, a huge demonstration, Rabat, Morocco, a country that has made peace with Israel, asking to cut off relations with Israel. And obviously, a lot of the anger is coming to the United States as a sponsor. The U.S. is seen as a sponsor. But even put the public opinion aside for a moment. What could happen? Even outside of the disaster that is likely to happen in, in the Palestinian-Israeli arena, there is a chance that Hezbollah in the north could be drawn in. Now, why is that important? Hezbollah, by the way, does not want to get in right now. They have their hands full domestically. It's not the timing they call. They like to uh, weigh it in. And obviously, they coordinate their decisions with Iran because Iran really backs them in a strong way. And Iran doesn't really want to get into it either for its own, for, for its own reasons. So for the, the, the good news, if there's any good news for now, is that they're not, you know, they're, that's not what they're looking into. And the Israelis don't want that to happen either. Because the Israelis really um, know that Hezbollah has far more capacity than Hamas. And fighting those two fronts, south and north, is going to hurt them a lot. Uh, now, of course, they can hurt Lebanon even more. And, and the poor Lebanese, you know, mostly the innocent, as you know, again, I'm not talking about Hezbollah and Hamas, put that aside, I'm talking about the populations that will suffer in a huge way. But if Hamas is, Hezbollah is drawn into it, which could happen, they already are forced to have skirmishes with, with the Israelis. Uh, they seem to be controlled for now. But if there is a, uh, you know, you, you, have, you have hundreds of thousands of refugees created, more destruction in Gaza, um, it's gonna be hard for Hezbollah to stay out. And if Hezbollah goes in, it's very hard to imagine 
that Iran may not be drawn in, or the US may not be drawn in, the United States just sent the second aircraft carrier into the region. And honestly, I think that was a mistake. Because I think it's, 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 it's um, first of all, we shouldn't make any military decision without weighing and consultation here and be uh, you know, in, a, in a position before we, we think of it. The first one was sent, it was kind of understood because it seemed to be as part of the pressure to prevent Hezbollah from entering, which is a good thing. Uh, but right now, it is possible that uh, we could be drawn in. Uh, I hope not, but it's possible that we could be drawn in. Do we want to have this Israeli government, the right-wing Israeli government, which we said is the most extreme, which many of our leaders, including the Democrats, said its aims are our aims and not the same, its values and our values are not the same, do we want to give them license to do what they do, including the possibility of bringing us in without calculus, without counseling, without taking a position on it? I think that's a mistake. And so, let me end by just saying, um, right now, I think we should be focused on the civilians. Uh, we need to think, obviously, beyond the civilians, but we need to think about the horror that has befell Israelis and Palestinians and find a way to reach out to them and make sure this doesn't expand. We meet, need to make sure that we rise to the moral moment that's needed. And we need to, rather than just rhetorically say to the civilians leave, we need to call for a pause in the fighting, if not an end or ceasefire, at least a pause. International, human, uh, international aid communities can't get people in. They can't get aid to save people. The hospitals are running out of um, uh, you know, medicines. Uh, their electricity is, um, many of them are, are on backup generators. Um, the you know, Doctors with, Without Borders described the situation of the hospitals as, quote, catastrophic. Um, uh, UN uh, observers said uh, hospitals uh, could become morgues. Uh, we, we need to find a way, first and foremost, to address this humanitarian disaster. Uh, and we are not doing anyone a favor by a full embrace, by a full embrace that blinds us as well to the suffering of the other. Thank you very much. Yes, sure. I'm happy to take it. Yeah, please. Uh, I, identify yourself, please. Oh, my name is Peter, and I'm a parishioner here. Thank you for a great talk. So I think this, I'm stealing this question from, I think, the New York Times headline. What was Hamas thinking? Like, was this, did that, did that have any strategic foresight to it, or was this just like a, a fit of a peak from the years of oppression? Didn't they foresee that there was going to be massive retaliation that was going to hurt civilian populations? And if they well, first of all, um, you know, those of us who've been watching this for decades, um, uh, um, honestly, the surprise uh, in this entire enterprise is not that Hamas did it. Uh, it was, they were capable of doing it. We knew that, everybody knew that, and, and you know, they were labeled accordingly. 
Uh, I think the surprise was that they had the capability to do it and that the Israelis failed to detect it and that the Israelis failed to address it very quickly. It took them you know, several days to be able to handle it. Uh, and that was huge surprise to me as well. I, I was not, the, you know, everybody was surprised, obviously surprised. I don't think there's anybody in my business who wasn't surprised by this capability and the Israelis' inability to detect it and respond to it quickly. So that's really the big surprise. Now, why is that the case? Why did it happen? We could discuss that. There are lots of reasons, in my opinion, including the possibility that John Brennan, former CIA director, said a possibility that Israeli um, uh, intelligence may have been compromised because there's now evidence that uh, Hamas had um, detailed uh, information about where everything was and where the troops were and how many troops and where the communication centers were and, and so forth. So, uh, so that, that's certainly a, a possibility. The other thing is that um, people, you know, I, I've seen this before. As I said, I'm a student of war. Uh, you know, in, in uh, 19, um, you know, the, the, the war happened on October 7. That is the day after the 50th anniversary of the 1973 war, uh, during which, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, Egyptians and the Syrians surprised uh, uh, Israel um, in attacking, trying to liberate their territories that they lost in the 67 war, which was just six years before. Uh, and um, the Israelis were very confident um, about their capabilities. They had built a, a, a really very strong line. They got far more support from the U.S., better equipment uh, since 67. Um, they have become much, much stronger even after they devastated uh, Egypt and, and Syria in the 67 war. And, and Syria and Egypt were completely uh, defeated. Uh, their military practically collapsed after the 67 war. So the Israelis were confident that this, you know, they, you know, they can't come back and, and mount a, a successful attack anyway in 73. Well, to everybody's shock, they did. And there are always surprises in war. Uh, and uh, very often, the will to fight compensates for the asymmetry of power. Uh, when, when there is a will, somehow that often creates a different opportunity. So there is that. But in terms of Hamas itself, exploiting the public opinion during that moment, did they expect the, the, the scale of the Israeli counterattack? Uh, there's a debate about that, and I have not decided yet whether Hamas itself um, uh, understood that this, the reaction would be on this scale, that the Israelis would go all in, including possibly a ground attack. Uh, I have not made up my mind on that yet. There are people who say they did not, uh, that they wanted to take, uh, they maybe succeeded beyond their own, succeeded from their point of view, obviously, in terms of their objectives, beyond their own imagination, including uh, taking more hostages than they may have even wanted to, over 150 hostages. Uh, and, uh, and, and therefore, uh, right now, they're, they're kind of a, in, a, in a position uh, with, with not knowing how to respond. Um, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, but there are people who say, no, and they were saying they expected what they expected. Uh, uh, the one thing they said from day one uh, was that they want uh, a way of releasing the 5,000 prisoners, Palestinian prisoners being held by Israel. Uh, that prisoner issue is incredibly emotional in the Palestinian areas. Not all of them are Hamas, many of them are, but a lot of them actually are held without charges. 
Uh, and this has been an emotional issue for Palestinians because I need to tell you that um, nearly a million Palestinians have been imprisoned in one form or another since the occupation started. So there isn't a, a Palestinian family that uh, hasn't had a member uh, who've been held in, in some form or another over the years. And so it's a very painful subject to try to capitalize on that, saying, you know, if they had managed to exchange prisoners and get them released, that would get them a lot of brownie points. So that's one, obviously, some, something stated from the very beginning. They consistently state it. They're stating it now. Um, there's also um, the Jerusalem issue. Um, uh, it, it is possible that they were worried about the implication of the Saudi-Israeli um, deal that would come at the expense of the Palestinians. Uh, it's not a surprise that they called it um, uh, the Jerusalem uh, flood uh, because uh, Al-Aqsa flood. Al-Aqsa, uh, as you know, is, is uh, the holy mosque in Jerusalem, which is the holiest mosque in Islam. And uh, it is really kind of a symbol for all Palestinians. It's kind of the center of Palestinian identity. Uh, and they've, they, they deploy that because they, they wanted to point at things that were happening in East Jerusalem and to Al-Aqsa Mosque compound and fears that Muslims have not just uh, uh, Palestinians but outside um, and wanted to use that as a way of rallying people around the world. So, um, or it, it could be just, just a motion to, to, to reshuffle the deck. Um, now, Hamas had argued, by the way, that they had information that Israel was going to do a ground attack in, in uh, Gaza after the Jewish holidays, the Sukkot holiday, uh, in any case. Uh, that's what they claimed. Now, the truth of the matter is there have been people in the Israeli government who are calling for that, particularly from the far right. Whether or not the Israelis were going to do it, uh, you know, or Hamas is using that as kind of a political... Uh, you know, uh, argument, I don't know. Uh, but, but there are people who are thinking that that's what they said. They said they're going to do it anyway, so we're kind of like, you know, preempting them. Um, uh, but, you know, these things we never know fully uh, for years to come. Yeah? I have read and heard frequently that the Palestinian people voted individuals of Hamas into their government. Is that true? Um, well, what happened was, is an, at some point back in when uh, the Bush administration was in office, um, the president actually s uh, supported the idea of having Palestinian elections, uh, and um, and Hamas actually won uh, the elections not by winning a majority, just by uh, well, you know how these things happen, where sometimes minorities can get control in in uh, in politics because of the way. Uh, the zoning and everything else that happened. So they didn't win a, ma a majority of, public, of, of the Palestinian public, but nonetheless, they won enough seats to be able to control the parliament, not the presidency, because the Palestinian Authority president, that was just parliamentary elections. It was not a presidency election. So it wasn't that they won the presidency, they won parliamentary elections. Uh, and initially, actually, G George W. Bush um, uh, said, well, let's, let's test it. But then very quickly he went, no, we can't accept it. And uh, Hamas then, um, it, 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 with its bickering with the Palestinian Authority, uh, that was more than bickering, uh, became sort of more like a war between them and the Palestinian Authority. And they took over Gaza uh, by, by fighting off the Palestinian Authority. So, so they took over Gaza. Uh, now they, they obviously have some support in the West Bank as well, 
Um, but they're, um, they're not in control of the West Bank. The Palestinian Authority is in control of the West Bank. In Gaza, they became technically uh, the, uh, the rulers of Gaza because they, they essentially became the government running, running Gaza. Uh, yeah, I have the lady, another one, the lady behind you, I think. Right. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so um, look, we are we, we, we work by international law. Uh, uh, sovereignty is determined by the United Nations. You know, states are defined. You know, the, the sovereignty of states is defined by the United Nations. The United Nations recognizes Israel as a state. Sta Israel is a state, uh, and technically, that although Israel had never defined its borders, the international community more or less considers the pre-1967 Israel to be the state of Israel. So when I'm referring to the occupied territory, I'm referring strictly to the way it's defined under international law, which is that Gaza and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, are occupied territory, which has been traditionally also the American official position. Um, so that, that is the way I see it. Now, uh, that is also the way most Palestinians who were engaged in negotiations saw it, who were for two-state solution, which was for a long time majority of Palestinians. Hamas um, talks differently about it, and certainly in their recent rhetoric, uh, they, they, um, when they say occupied, they refer also to uh, territories that are inside Israel. We've got time for one more if it's short. All right. Please. All right. Thank you very much. My name is Tony. Um, your comments seem to be similar to those that are whispered in Washington, but not in the mainstream press. Um, and you said that you advise a number of presidents, but you're not advising the current president. Is the current president receiving the kind of views that you express as he addresses the situation to your knowledge? Uh, this is a, um, a really um, uh, um, tough issue because, um, you know, I know how policy is made and um, what happens in situations of this sort. Um, I can't say that I'm not weighing in sometimes giving private advice to this administration. Uh, I have been invited to the White House a couple of times to give opinion, not directly to the president, uh, but to people around him. Uh, I have been in briefings, um, uh, including in the past week, um, uh, so I'm not excluded uh, from, from that conversation. Um, the, what happens in these situations is that uh, when it comes to anything to do with the Israeli-Palestinian issue, which is really a domestic issue for us, it is an, it's, it's a, you, know, you can't avoid that. It's a domestic American issue. There's no other issue like it. Uh, uh, you know, there were lots of issues about which American, but this is like, yes, it's a foreign policy issue, but it's also an internal domestic issue. Only the President of the United States can make a decision on it. And he will often uh, uh, overrule uh, people around him, including a Secretary of State. And that goes, by the way, goes for every President I, uh, I you know, uh, who, whose administration I advised, uh, whether it, including Barack Obama. You know, somebody I, I hugely admired. Um, but, but this was an issue that only the president can make, and the president threads very carefully. Um, and, and that's true for George W. Bush. It's true for uh, um, 
uh, for uh, Clinton, uh, it was true for um, you know uh, uh, Bush 41. I mean, it was it was really true for for everyone. Uh, I think. Um, now, what happens um, when you say, okay, so I'm giving advice? Presidents live in their own bubble. A president is is a lonely job, as you know, and so. While their advisors might filter through a lot of information, uh, the density of information they get, they get it mostly from people they know. And, and in this particular case, the president is also is a presidential candidate. And, uh, and so a lot of things come in. I don't wanna say he's making political decisions because I don't know how he's making those decisions. Um, but, um, but we know how politics works. It gives access to a lot of people who are involved in politics. So uh, presidents live in a bubble even when they have a lot of good advisors. And um, uh, this particular president, um, uh, whom as I said, I, I, I knew him when he was a senator. I, knew, I, uh, I talked to him when he was vice president. Um, it, you know, he's a smart guy. He knows a lot about international affairs. He has a lot of experience. He thinks he knows a lot about this issue. So even when you talk to him, he, uh, he tends to want to tell you what it is. Uh, and um, he um, certainly has been historically sympathetic to Israel, uh, to the point that he was criticized by a lot of Democratic, pro-Israel Democratic members of Congress. If you recall in 21, when there was a, an outbreak of fighting between Gaza and, and Israel, and he failed to condemn, he condemned Hamas obviously, which is, which is obviously the right thing to do, but he failed to condemn the bombings even then, and uh, the Israeli bombings that generated uh, you know, hundreds of, of, of uh, casualties, innocent civilian casualties, and, uh, and his colleagues in Congress called him on it, and he still didn't really go that route. So I think he might have his own strong views uh, on this, um, I, I can't really tell. I find that to be a puzzle because um, uh, this is a moment, as I said, it's not only one where um, uh, it's a moral moment. I expect my commander in chief, I expect my commander in chief to rise above the pain at this moment and, and counsel <coughs> the right path, uh, standing up right, uh, whatever it takes. Uh, too many people are getting hurt for not doing that, but I also expect our commander in chief to be mindful of our interests and not subcontract them. I worry about that a lot, subcontracting our interests. And let's be clear, uh, President Obama, I know a lot of people criticize him, uh, he did the right thing in doing the Iran deal, not because it was a perfect deal, no it was not, it could have been a lot better for a lot of reasons. But what his priority was, he thought that he was going to be dragged into war with Iran, and that was not in America's national interest, and we should have avoided it at all costs, because that would be devastating for us and for them, and for the region. We've seen what happened in Iraq, we've seen what happened in Afghanistan. We need to do that. To his credit, Donald Trump, whether you love him or hate him, the one thing he understood is he didn't want to get the US dragged into a big war. And he refused, and there were pressures on him, particularly the last year in office, to be dragged into war with Iran. He refused to do that. And I expect this president to do the, the same thing. And I'm worried that the policy we now have in place this week doesn't do that. <laughs>
Thank you.